welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Georgia Ray, and I am your host. Today, I will be speaking with Jim McElfish, Senior Attorney at the Environmental Law Institute and the Director of the Organization's Sustainable Use of Land Program. Also a wetlands expert, Jim will talk today about state protection of waters that are not protected by the Federal Clean Water Act. Based on ELI research, today's conversation will primarily concern what may happen if the Supreme Court's action in Sackett v. Environmental Protection Agency results in a rollback of what qualifies as a Water of the United States, or WOTUS. First arguments for this case were heard on Monday, October 3rd, 2022. It is one in a line of cases that have concerned how the United States defines waters that are and are not under the purview of regulations set by the Clean Water Act. Jim will get into more of the details of these cases a little later on. Importantly, we will also talk today about the regulatory gaps left behind when federal regulations change. Using state examples like North Carolina and South Dakota, Jim will explain the challenges of water regulation when federal protections are taken away. Scientists urge us to view waters as an integrated system rather than independent and divided bodies. However, legal structures often create categorizations that do treat interconnected bodies as distinct from one another. This can lead to water quality protections for one body of water, but not another that is nearby and connected, thereby jeopardizing the water quality of the whole system. Jim's work appears in the September issue of the Environmental Law Reporter and is currently, as of October 2022, available for free download on the ELI homepage. Those that are interested in this important topic are encouraged to seek it out and learn more. Jim, thank you for being here. I would like to situate listeners by first giving them a sense of this acronym that I am sure we will be using today, WOTUS. What does it stand for? Why is it so important? And why are we talking about it right now? So WOTUS stands for Waters of the United States. It's a term that is important because it defines what waters are covered by the Federal Clean Water Act. And that's important because there are certain protections that are given to federal waters uh, by that act. Uh, And so the contest over what is a WOTUS and what is not a WOTUS becomes particularly important. Um, The the term actually... uh, appears in the Clean Water Act as a way of defining an older term, navigable waters. And navigable waters was a term that was used since the 1890s to determine what water the federal government had jurisdiction over. In the 70s, when Congress got around to passing a Clean Water Act, they borrowed the navigable waters term, but then they redefined that as waters of the United States. Thank you for that explanation. And before we dive deeper into the present moment and future considerations, I'd like to go back in time a little bit. Can you tell us how we got here? How has the definition of WOTUS been previously changed by court cases and administrations? So in 1972, Congress passed the amendments to the Federal Water Pollution Control Act, now commonly known as the Clean Water Act. And uh, that established a whole set of permit requirements and water quality requirements, uh, standards and evaluations, a system of state permitting, 
uh, and the like, which actually gave us the modern protections that we're used to for uh, clean water in the United States. And initially, the term was not defined in the statute beyond waters of the United States. And in the 70s, the Corps of Engineers, who was responsible for part of that act, along with EPA, defined waters of the United States in a way that turned out to be too narrow. Uh, And the courts told the court to go back and redefine it. And through a series of definitions uh, culminating in the early 1980s, uh, we had a pretty broad definition of what is a water of the United States. We stood there for several decades, and there were some uh, court decisions uh, from time to time helping define what is the water of the U.S. and what is not. And have the courts had anything to say about this? They have. Georgia, the Supreme Court has had a great deal to say uh, from time to time as to what is the water of the United States and what is not. Um, The most uh, significant and first case on this topic was in the mid-1980s, a case called United States versus Riverside Bayview Homes, where the question was whether a wetland that was adjacent to a river was a water of the United States. And the argument was, well, the wetland itself is not navigable. Can it still be a water of the U.S.? And the court said uh, unanimously that it could. The court said that wetlands immediately adjacent to uh, waters of the United States were themselves waters of the United States. Uh, After that, uh, a number of years later, there was a case involving isolated ponds uh, actually associated with uh, waste disposal facility. And in that case, uh, which is uh, the Solid Waste Agency of Northern Cook County, or the Swank case, uh, the court said that isolated ponds not connected in any way with other waters in the U.S. were not themselves waters of the U.S. And in that case, um, the United States had relied on the use of those ponds by uh, migratory birds as a way of connecting them to other waters. The court said, that's too far. That's not what Congress had in mind. So the Swank case said isolated wetlands and waters are not waters of the United States. And then in 2006, the court had a case called Rapanos versus United States. And that case involved another set of wetlands and waters. And the question was, to what extent uh, could these wetlands and waters that were not immediately adjacent, but had connections of some kind to other waters, were covered by the Clean Water Act? And we ended up with a completely fractured uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision. So the four most conservative justices said a wetland is a water of the U.S. only if it has a continuous surface connection to a relatively permanently flowing body of water, like a river or stream, a lake. The four uh, most liberal justices said Waters of the United States actually covers an extremely broad spectrum of waters that have all kinds of connections to navigable waters. And the deciding opinion was Justice Kennedy, who writing just for himself said, 
that uh, Clean Water Act uh, jurisdiction occurs wherever there are similarly situated waters that together or in combination uh, significantly affect the chemical, physical, the biological integrity of waters of the United States. So that's the significant nexus test. And so in effect, we had a contest where four justices say only relatively permanent surface connection, four say it's a broad test covering most waters, and Justice Kennedy saying if you can show a significant nexus, it's a water of the U.S. After these Supreme Court cases, there were responses of various kinds. One of the sets of responses that occurred were sets of rulemakings to attempt to define or redefine what is the U.S. in regulation. And in 2015, the Obama administration adopted a set of regulations which adopted the significant nexus test pretty thoroughly and tried to define it in a way that would be easier to follow for states and environmental permit applicants. Um, that uh, definition was contested in court by various people, and a court injunction was issued in some courts saying the Obama administration test could not be used. Other courts said it could. And then when the Trump administration took office, they began a rulemaking and they repealed the Obama administration test and adopted a test that was based on the conservative plurality test, the relatively permanent continuous surface connection test. And the, that um, Trump administration rulemaking was completed in 2020. Uh, lawsuits were filed there, and a, a court uh, enjoined the use of that test. Uh, and so we've been in a state of uh, quite a bit of flux um, very much since the, the rulemakings had occurred. The Joe Biden administration in 2021 essentially has proposed to go back to the Justice Kennedy test and has promised to engage in a new rulemaking. Uh, but again, uh, many uh, groups have threatened to sue based on, on that as well. So from what you're saying so far, I think our listeners get a good sense of the variability in these regulations and how they can change based on court cases and administrations. And that really brings us to the role of the states in all of this and how states approach protecting WOTUS and non-WOTUS waters. In your paper, you offer three categories, states that are completely reliant on WOTUS, states regulating some non-WOTUS waters, and states covering most non-WOTUS waters. Could you give a hallmark example of each of these categorizations and what sets them apart from each other? Sure, Georgia. The, the states do fall into three groups. There's a, a group of um, 24 states, nearly half of the states, that rely for regulatory purposes on the federal definitions. And they, for the most part, do not have their own regulatory programs dealing with particularly protection of wetlands. Um, they rely on uh, federal Corps of Engineers permitting and uh, federal definitions. They do have some say over what happens in those waters through a provision of the Clean Water Act called Section 401, 
which allows them to condition a federal permit in order to protect water quality. But their 401 power is limited to those waters that are waters of the U.S. So that's about half of the states. There are 19 states that have fairly robust regulatory programs of their own. And those those programs operate to protect all kinds of waters and wetlands, many of which are WOTUS, many of which are not. And uh, these include probably most of the states in the Northeast, down through the Mid-Atlantic, the Upper Midwest, uh, the states on the West Coast, um, Florida, several others, uh, with pretty robust uh, state permitting programs. And then there's another group of seven states and the District of Columbia that rely mostly on uh, WOTUS and federal permitting, but that have carved out specific non-WOTUS waters for protection under state law. And those include some states like Indiana or Ohio that after the Swank decision, uh, adopted uh, sets of regulations to protect isolated wetlands. And so for most purposes, they rely on federal definitions, but they have a set of state regulations that protect a defined set of non-WOTUS waters. And if I'm not mistaken, North Carolina is also in that group, and it's facing a particular conundrum in filling the gaps between what was previously considered a WOTUS water and no longer is. Can you tell us a little more about this particular case and why it's proving to be such a challenge? Yeah, so North Carolina was a state that did not have its own independent uh, wetlands permitting program. And after the Swank decision in 2001, it realized that its isolated wetlands would not be protected. So in 2001, it adopted a set of regulations to protect those isolated uh, waters and wetlands. In recent years, though, with the change between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, it became clear that waters that had been waters of the United States under the Rapanos test under the Obama test would no longer be protected under the Trump administration rule test. North Carolina faced a situation where some waters that had been protected would no longer be protected because of the change in definition under the Trump administration. Certain waters that were not isolated uh, were also did not also have a continuous surface connection to a relatively permanent body of water. So the environmental agency adopted temporary regulations to protect these waters to prevent them from being subject to no regulation and no permit scheme. Unfortunately, what happened uh, after that is that the regulatory review process in North Carolina for the final regulations uh, has led to a situation where the Regulatory Review Commission says that the environmental agency has no power to adopt these regulations because, in the opinion of the Rules Review Commission, the new regulations run afoul of another prohibition in North Carolina law that says that the state cannot adopt regulations that are more stringent than uh, the federal regulations. 
Yeah, and this idea of stringency prohibitions is something you talk about in your paper. Can you explain a little more how these affect states' ability to change water regulations in response to federal lotus definition changes? Yeah, so uh, the, most of the federal regulatory schemes uh, preserve the opportunity for states to regulate their own waters or air or hazardous waste or the like, uh, so long as they're consistent with the federal approach. Um, but a number of states, uh, beginning decades ago, uh, began to adopt legislative prohibitions on their regulatory agencies from being any more strict than the federal requirements or from regulating things that the federal government does not regulate. So they're essentially a, uh, this is essentially a deregulatory or anti-regulatory approach that state legislatures have adopted uh, from time to time. The states that have adopted prohibitions on stringency make it very difficult for their environmental agencies to adopt regulations that would fill a gap if that filling the gap action would be regarded as being more strict than the federal regulations would, would provide. So I know we talked about the North Carolina example, but it could be helpful to give another example of this stringency prohibition in action. Could you walk through how it's played out in, or how it would play out in South Dakota, for example? Yeah, and South Dakota is an interesting example because South Dakota probably has the strictest of the prohibitions or limitations on stringency. It essentially prohibits any rule adopted under any of its environmental laws from being, quote, more stringent than any corresponding federal law, rule, or regulation governing an essentially similar subject or issue. Unquote. So in South Dakota, the agencies cannot, without the legislature coming in and giving them authority to do so, the agencies cannot themselves adopt regulations that would regulate in an area where the, the federal government uh, has not or uh, has, has chosen not to regulate. So this, for example, if uh, there is a change in the definition of waters of the U.S. Uh, the South Dakota agencies uh, could not themselves adopt regulations uh, to, to fill that gap. And the question we have in the North Carolina case is, is the current attempt by North Carolina to fill a gap allowed or not allowed? And that's an ongoing uh, contest as of fall of, of 2022. So when we think about these changing regulations and the ability to fill these gaps, as we approach the end of the podcast here, can we take a step backward from the legalese? And what does this really mean for our waters on a day-to-day -day level? How could this affect people's lives? One of the things that is important to understand is that if the Supreme Court uh, in, a, in a pending case called Sackett versus Environmental Protection Agency, if it narrows the definition of Clean Water Act of WOTUS coverage, uh, then immediately many of the states, at least 24 states, will not currently have the power or ability to protect their waters. 
unless they take some kind of regulatory action. And some of the states might be able to take regulatory action by their agencies adopting uh, regulations if they have authority to do so. But in the states with stringency prohibitions, they will not be able to do that unless their legislature steps in and authorizes them to do that. And legislatures can do that. Uh, Arizona, for example, just last year, recognized that they might lose power uh, to protect some of their waters that were important for drinking water, fishing, recreation, and the like. And their legislature then adopted a law which protects those waters, at least from discharge of pollutants directly into those waters. So it's possible for a state legislature to act, but it requires action. And if there is any sort of uh, political um, turmoil or gridlock or the like, these states that are in the 24 that are mostly reliant on uh, federal definitions or the seven that only have uh, partial programs are very much at the mercy of what happens federally. This clearly can cause a, a problem for drinking water supplies. It can cause problems for protection of headwater streams, areas that are important for fishing or trout reproduction. Uh, many of the waters that may fall outside federal definition are in the Southwest, where certain of the rivers and streams only flow certain years or certain times of year. And these are extremely important for public health and for biodiversity, but they are at the mercy of changing federal definitions unless the states act and and the states need to be able to act. Well, thank you so much for providing that insight. My final question for you is if listeners are interested in learning more about this topic, where should they go? There are lots of uh, useful places to go. I advise people always to visit ELI's website at eli.org. There's also uh, good information uh, on uh, EPA's uh, website about the various rulemakings. Well, thank you so much again for joining me today. Thank you, Georgia. It was always engaging to hear from someone as knowledgeable as yourself on a topic as important as this one. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod. Brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.